Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to For Your Innovation, your podcast on all things disruptive technology. Um, today, we have a special guest on the show, Professor Henry Greeley. He is the director at the Center for Law and Biosciences at Stanford. He is a professor of genetics at the Stanford School of Medicine, and he's also a chair at the steering committee of the Center for Bioethical Ethics. I think this is a really great time to touch on some of these topics because we've had the news out of China that they have created the first genetically modified babies using CRISPR technology. I also have, of course, Manisha Sami with us. She is the resident analyst at ARC covering all things CRISPR and probably the most passionate person I know about CRISPR. How is everyone doing today? Great. Hi, Thank thanks. you. All right. I think maybe just to, to set the stage, I think most of us have read the news, but for uh, those who haven't, what is the major thing that's happened in the last month or two that's become highly controversial in the CRISPR field? I guess CRISPR itself, maybe Manish, you can just give a general outline of what CRISPR is, how it's become interesting, and uh, what's happened and why we're having a discussion really on the ethical implications. Sure. So for those of you who are not aware what CRISPR genome editing is, it's a new type of genome editing technology that was first discovered in 2012 and has since made uh, its way into the scientific community and is an easier, cheaper way of editing uh, DNA. So genome editing is not anything new. We've had it for decades, but the key innovation here is that it is that much easier to use and has democratized genome editing. In terms of recent controversial news uh, that many of you may or may not have heard of is uh, what you had described earlier. So the birth of twins that were edited using CRISPR, hoping to make these babies HIV resistant. But I'd love to get your take here, uh, Professor Greeley, and if you can kind of set the stage of what is it really that we're looking at, what has happened, what's the controversy that has uh, emerged since that news broke out? Sure. First, we don't know whether anything's actually happened. A Chinese scientist named He Jiangkui announced at a major international summit on human genome editing that he had successfully edited the genomes of two embryos that subsequently became twin little girls. No one other than, no scientist other than Dr. He has seen these girls. No one knows whether he actually did what he claims he did. My guess is he probably did it because what he did looks bad enough that if he were making it up entirely, he would probably have given himself better results. But first, we've got no verification that anything happened. Assuming it did happen, what happened was he took embryos that he'd gotten from an IVF facility, supposedly with the informed consent of the parents, although that's not entirely clear. And he used CRISPR gene editing 
to try to change both copies of a gene in those embryos that's called CCR5. CCR5 is a gene that makes a protein that, among other things, is a receptor protein on the surface of T cells, some of the white blood cells that are crucial parts of your immune system. What makes CCR5 really interesting is it looks as though HIV needs to be able to latch onto a CCR5 protein in order to infect a T cell. So people who don't have any CCR5 proteins on their T cells seem to be, as far as we can tell, immune or at least highly resistant to having those cells infected with HIV. About 10% of the European population, northern European population, and smaller percentages of other populations carry one bad copy of the CCR5 gene. Those people make CCR5 and are susceptible to HIV. But about 1% of northern Europeans has no good copy of the CCR5 gene, and they appear we're not entirely sure, but they appear to be highly resistant to or immune to HIV infection. It's not clear what else, what other effects they have from it. We know that it's consistent with life because some of the people with this are normal, apparently healthy adults. There's a little bit of evidence that maybe it makes them more susceptible to infection with West Nile virus. Maybe it makes them susceptible to really bad flu infections. Uh, but we really don't know what the long-term effects are on people of having no CCR5, no functional CCR5 gene. It's a little disconcerting that CCR5 is heavily conserved and seems to show up in almost all mammals, which does imply that it's probably doing something good, but biology is complicated enough that you can't be sure. So what Dr. He tried to do, and He, by the way, is very confusingly spelled capital H, little e, so I've ended up writing sentences like, if he did what he says he did, but apparently it's pronounced more like huh. If Dr. Hood did what he said he did, he created, he edited two embryos and used them to produce two baby girls who he hoped wouldn't be susceptible to HIV. That's the short answer. So that's a very, really incredible development. I'm curious, what do you think is the motivation behind this particular use case as a demonstration of CRISPR? Is this, I assume the parents are not HIV positive, this is not an actual specific use case for this family, or is this just a, a science experiment to kind of prove out a use case? So I think the specific use involved from Dr. His perspective, my sense is he wanted to become famous in the worst possible way. And he has become famous in the worst possible way. There's no good justification for this. The biggest problem with this experiment would be a problem whether he was using CRISPR or not, whether he was editing embryos or not. One of the two most basic rules of human subjects research is the risks have to be justified by the potential benefits. The potential benefits have to be high enough to justify the risks you're taking. The risks here for first use in human embryos are enormous. They're both risks of the process itself using CRISPR in the embryos, some of which, most of which involve CRISPR making unexpected and unfortunate other changes, so-called off-target changes. Another one which actually happened here is CRISPR not really making the change that you wanted it to make. There are risks that we don't know about life without CCR5, particularly life for people in China, with a different, slightly different genetic background and a very different environmental background than, say, people in Germany uh, for having no CCR5 genes. 
So the risks here were potentially enormous. You could learn more about them by doing more work with non-human uh, primates in particular, but other non-human animals. Piss says he did some of it. He didn't hasn't published any of it, and that's not verified by anybody. And then on the other hand, you got the benefits, and the benefits are close to zero. What are the odds that these two baby girls born in China will ever be exposed to or infected with HIV? Well, they're not zero, but they're not huge. What are the chances that they could prevent being HIV infected in other ways? Well, really quite good today. And they're not going to be sexually active, presumably, for about 20 years. Where will HIV be in 20 years in terms of prevention? How bad is HIV? Well, it's no longer the death sentence it used to be. It's certainly not a disease you'd like to have. Where will it be in 20 years? We don't know. So the potential benefits to the kids are quite limited. The actual benefits are even more limited because he didn't do a good job of gene editing. Before he transferred these embryos into a woman's uterus for possible implantation, pregnancy, and birth, he already had checked the gene sequence. With one of the embryos, he modified one of the, some of the cells, but not all of the cells. So some of the cells have the modification to CCR5 and others don't. Well, if some of the T cells can be infected, then she can be infected. Uh, the other problem, which is true for the other twin, what he'd wanted to do was a 32 base pair deletion. That's the one that's found in nature that makes the CCR5 ineffective. He didn't manage to do that with either twin, and the twin who wasn't a mosaic, who didn't have some altered cells and some unaltered cells, he made two different mutations, and we don't know whether they work to prevent HIV. We don't know what the side effects of those mutations are. So in this case, the benefits potentially were quite small, and in actuality, for one of the twins are clearly zero, and for the other twin might well be zero. So biggest problem with this grossly flunked the benefit-risk ratio. In fact, the father of these twins, or the, the person who's provided the sperm, was HIV positive, but there are other ways to prevent transmission of HIV from paternal sperm, and they did use that. It's just called sperm washing. You wash the sperm so that any HIV virions that are attached to the sperm, that are in the goo around the sperm, get washed away. The fact that the father was HIV positive had nothing to do with a justification for doing this gene editing. So fundamentally, really bad experiment, really high risks, really low benefits, great uncertainty about whether the informed consent was meaningful. His consent form said this was a test of HIV vaccination, which it's not really true except in the most strained definition of vaccination. And Hood did the informed consent himself. It was him talking to the parents. We don't know what he said. And he's not trained in doing informed consent. So kind of from beginning to end, this experiment is an embarrassment to science, a fiasco. We can only hope that the two little girls aren't actually harmed by it. Right. Wow. So definitely. So, so, so I, I don't like it. <laughs> I'm against it. I mean, it, it makes sense. You provided some uh, great feedback on why the experiments were flawed and the risks that were associated with what He had executed uh, in China. But I'm curious: are there certain so are there certain circumstances in which you do foresee germline editing becoming a staple for treating uh, 
some sort of rare disease that we may not have a therapy for today. And germline editing, maybe a quick definition. Sure. So germline editing is the editing of either an egg or sperm cell, and these edits can actually be passed down uh, to future progeny. Right. It's editing either an egg or a sperm, or it's editing an early embryo, which will then make the eggs and the sperm for that person. Uh, you could, in theory, do germline editing on an adult by doing something that just edited all the cells in testicles or all the cells in ovaries. But the way people mainly are using it is is synonymous with embryo editing. If the embryo's genes are edited, then all of the person's subsequent cells will be edited, including eggs and sperm. So that's a good question. Uh, the answer is maybe. It's a definite, clear, certain maybe. One problem is establishing it's safe. Before it's safe, there's no justification for this. Before we know it's reasonably safe, somebody who comes up with a new way of making babies that leads to a high percentage of dead or disabled babies deserves to rot in the bottom circle of hell. So safety is a huge question. I suspect ultimately within 10 or 20 years, we'll decide that it's safe enough to try. But even when it's safe enough, you need a good reason. And that's another problem with this. Almost everything we know how to do that we would want to do through gene editing, you can do through a different procedure that's been around and safe and effective for 28 years called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or PGD for short. PGD involves taking an early embryo. You've got to use IVF to do this because you have to be able to reach the embryo. If you conceive the old-fashioned way, the embryo is halfway down one of the fallopian tubes and you'll never find it. If you use IVF, the embryo is in the petri dish you put it in. You take that embryo in the U.S. We typically do this at day five after fertilization and take off a couple of its cells, a few of its cells, and do a genetic test for those. Now, there are two main kinds of genetic diseases, autosomal recessive and autosomal dominant. There are a few others, but those are the vast bulk of diseases. Autosomal recessive diseases like cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs disease or sickle cell require people to get two bad copies of the gene, one from each parent. If you've got one good copy and one bad copy, you're healthy. So let's say cystic fibrosis, about one U.S. couple in... 400 will have two carriers of, of a CF gene. Neither one is sick, but they each have one good copy and one bad copy. Every one of their babies will have a one in four chance of getting two bad copies and getting cystic fibrosis. You could take embryos and genetically modify them to edit the CF gene to make it normal, or you could make 10 embryos, do PGD, figure out which embryos will not have CF, and use those. Similarly, with autosomal dominant, where it takes only one bad copy of the gene, an example of this would be Huntington's disease. One bad copy of the gene, the only way you won't die of Huntington's disease is to die first from something else. You can make four embryos, test them. Half of them, on average, will have the bad copy of the gene. Half of them will have the good copy of the gene, and only use the ones with the good copy of the gene. This process, called preimplantation genetic diagnosis, First used in people in 1990. In 2015, the last year for which we've got data, there were probably 4,000 kids born in the U.S. after PGD, none of whom was missing an arm, a leg, or a head. The other cells make up for the cells you've taken off. It's safe and effective. It'll do almost everything we know how to do that one would want to do right now with 
gene editing. There are a couple of, of exceptions that are interesting, but not very widely applicable. One is, what if two people with cystic fibrosis live long enough and are healthy enough that they want to have kids? The only way they could have kids from their own egg and sperm would involve those kids having cystic fibrosis because they only have CF pathogenic alleles. They only have, have the gene variants that cause CF to give a child. If they want to have a healthy kid, they'd need to do gene editing. Or if you've got two copies of the gene that makes for Huntington's disease, that leads to Huntington's disease, and you live long enough and are healthy enough to want to have kids, you've got two copies. You'll necessarily pass one of those on to your children. The only way you could have healthy children is through gene editing. How many people in the world fall into one of those categories? It depends on how broadly you define it. There'll be maybe thousands of couples, but there won't be hundreds of thousands of couples, and that's out of 7.5 billion people. So that's the best use case I can think of. You do get funky issues like this idea of immunity. If you want to try to make people immune from HIV by changing their CCR5, well, then the way you would need to do that is by gene editing. But you'd first have to be a lot more confident than we are now that the gene editing won't cause harm and that the gene you're changing from its normal version to an abnormal version, that the abnormal version won't cause any harms either. I see. So... Wow. So to pull it back, really, we have discovered uh, essentially a, a super weapon or Pandora's box for genetic editing, which is CRISPR. But in reality, A, we know so little about it. Um, its potential for abuse is very high. Its potential to introduce errors is very high. And we need a lot more study to be done at various levels before it's before we fully understand what we're dealing with. But to solve a problem such as the one here and the various other diseases you described like cystic fibrosis, we already have an existing tool in our tool belt that's being used since the 90s where we basically make we, – we fertilize lots of eggs and we pick out the healthy ones. It's very straightforward. It doesn't require editing. And it seems like almost a way over-engineered solution, at least from the outcome perspective. So it is for those problems. For diseases where a single gene is involved – that we understand well, and that's basically the only genetic diseases we understand well are those where a single gene is involved. But I want to note it's primarily these problems are really exacerbated when you're talking about human babies. If you're talking about new strains of wheat or mosquito babies or new bacteria, we don't care that much about whether the, the baby bacterium is hurt or helped or the baby mosquito is hurt or helped. We care a lot about baby humans. So CRISPR has lots and lots of enormously potentially good uses in areas where we don't care as much about the risks. There are risks we need to care about, but the risks of making human babies, those are the risks we probably care about more than any other risks in the world. The other side of it is using CRISPR in born people. So let's say you've got a baby who's been born with cystic fibrosis. Well, maybe you want to use CRISPR to try to change the genes in that baby's lung cells so that the lungs now have the healthy CFTR protein and the baby doesn't get cystic fibrosis. That kind of gene therapy use of CRISPR is very exciting. It's not nearly as risky. The cost-benefit, the, the risk-benefit ratio is much better because you've got a baby who's going to have this terrible disease. You can hope to fix the disease by changing the living baby or the living adult. So CRISPR has huge potential uses that are that are completely, well, 
that need some thought and some care and some regulation, but that are not by any means outrageous. The hardest what he did was move way too quickly to the hardest possible case for using CRISPR, editing babies, editing embryos to make genetically modified babies. And there's another side to this that I haven't mentioned. I've been talking about safety and benefit. Everybody agrees on that. There's a reason that basically every scientist in the world except one has condemned his work. And part, and a lot of that has to do with the risk-benefit ratio, which is just an outrageously reckless decision. But many people, some scientists, some non-scientists, also think it's a bad idea to change the germlines to make changes that can be passed down from one generation to another. By doing this without there having been a broad social discussion, agreement, or acquiescence in germline modification, it has also harmed science, I think, by making science look like it is out of control, that rogue scientists do things without paying any attention to what the rest of the world thinks. And in fact, in his case, a rogue scientist did do something when the rest of the world thought it was a bad idea. That harms science in a way that um, many scientists will care deeply about, in addition to the potential harms to these two baby girls. Wow, that is fascinating. So do you think that Ho's experiment now may have cast a pall on the publicly listed CRISPR companies? So we have CRISPR Therapeutics. Editas Medicine and Intelia, all three of these companies are working towards now editing the cells of already born uh, patients, and they're doing some great work there. So do you think what has happened recently might, I guess, stagnate the research into CRISPR? Or do you think that uh, eventually this controversy will dissipate? Exactly. (laughs) Thank you, James. First, that's a really interesting empirical question that I haven't thought about. You've got effectively the possibility for an event study. Did his announcement affect the stock prices of those companies? And I don't know the answer to that. Rationally, they shouldn't have because those companies are not and will not in the the certainly short or even midterm future want to do embryo editing. That's something they undoubtedly will try to stay away from. But I don't know whether it actually affected the share prices, because we know that share prices are not necessarily the product of purely rational calculation. In the long run, I do think that it has, well, not in the long run, in in the short to midterm, I think his experiment does cast a pall over all CRISPR and all gene editing. The public isn't necessarily going to make a clear distinction between germline and somatic cell. The public isn't going to make a clear distinction between changing embryos and changing sick adults or between changing embryos and changing agricultural crops. So what I worry about most coming out of this is the health of the two babies. But what I worry about second most is that public opposition and or legislation will end up stopping, stifling slowing down really useful research, research that everybody would agree is useful, but broad hysterical reactions could throw a monkey wrench into that. I'm sure that Greenpeace and a variety of anti-GM groups have already started including this in their reasons why genetic modification is a bad idea. 
right? I think maybe this is a good time to kind of talk about, you know, this is a great example of a powerful technology used in a, in a terrible way and very irresponsibly, um, almost as if just to get to get to a headline and, and to claim a, a, a first. And what is the, I guess, current working model of how um, scientists who work in this field arrive at what are acceptable, what are not acceptable experiments? Yeah, I think it's very, it's not surprising that this came out of China. Um, even in the internet space, with each, we see them being extremely creative and pushing the barriers. Um, I think you know Facebook has this notion of move fast and break things, and when software breaks, we're not too upset. But if we're applying that same mentality to human DNA, its consequences are, are a matter of life and death. So does China play by the existing set of rules? How do you see, I guess, the, the regulatory and ethical landscape right now of what is sound, what is not sound, and um, how China fits into this whole picture? So that's a good but complicated question. First, there has been for at least the last three years a fairly broad scientific consensus that you shouldn't try to do germline editing in humans yet. Maybe sometime in the future, but not yet. That's been expressed at a couple of big scientific meetings. It was expressed in a February 2017 report by the National Academy of Sciences and basically every responsible scientist has agreed with that. Now, that's, a, that's not a legally binding consensus. It's a cultural norm which can be broken and was broken by He. In almost every country, including China, you are required to get permission from a relevant ethics committee before you do human subjects research. That committee should say, huh, are the benefits worth the risks here? Is the informed consent adequate? He claims that he got that consent from a hospital in China. The hospital says it didn't give that consent and has implied that the consent that the form that He has was forged. That's one of many things about this we don't know the answer to yet. I mean, we don't we don't even know whether the babies exist. We also, as far as I know right now, don't know where He is. There are rumors that he's been arrested, but we don't know that either. So there is an ethic, there's both an international consensus, which doesn't have legally binding force, but there's also in most countries legally binding rules for getting approval of research with human subjects. He says that he followed those rules in China. Uh, the, the institution involved says that he didn't. We don't know the answer to that. China's a really interesting place. There has been a fair amount of China bashing, I think, in the U.S., including in biology. The Chinese, there's actually, it's tying into an old racist theme about the yellow peril. These Chinese, they don't have ethics, they don't have morals, they don't abide by rules. I've been arguing against that for a while. I think that's really unfair. The Chinese do have ethics, research ethics standards. They're not very different from the rest of the world. They don't care as much about human embryos as some other countries do, but otherwise they have pretty standard human subjects research rules. I do think, and this is kind of ironic for what we think of as an authoritarian communist dictatorship, China's not very good at implementing things in the sense that it's a really big country and Beijing, except when it directly involves the power of the communist party, Beijing's not that good at getting its wishes carried out at individual levels. So in the United States, we have lots of different committees, lots of different universities and, and companies that know about these committees, that know how they're supposed to work, that have regulatory affairs and human subjects research divisions and offices. 
China's is much sketchier, not in the sense of being more questionable, but just less fleshed out, less worked out. And I think to some extent that may have been part of why Ho was able to get away with this in China. I don't think it's that the Chinese are devoid of, con- of these concerns, but they're not as good at enforcing them. One of the really interesting things about the aftermath of his statement was almost immediately a letter signed by 122 prominent Chinese scientists and ethicists was released decrying what he did, calling it an embarrassment that he shamed their country in the face of the world. I think that's likely to be an authentic representation of at least scientific sentiment in China. I was very pleased when the Beijing government ultimately said this was illegal, this was wrong, we're forcing it to be stopped. I was a little worried, China being almost as nationalistic as the United States, that instead the government would have said, ah, it's another wonderful first for Chinese science. Could have gone that direction. It didn't. And so I'm not particularly worried about China. I do think this points out, though, that there's no way you can guarantee that bad things won't happen. Murder has been illegal for a long, long time, but murders still happen. Fewer murders happen because it's illegal. So we can say no human germline modification. Making that stick all over the world, no guarantees. I I do think that this experience has made it less likely, though. If, If you're the next scientist who wants to become famous by CRISPRing babies, you look at what happened to her and say, hmm, well, maybe I don't want to do that. Or if you're an IVF clinic who's got embryos requested by a scientist for research, maybe you ask more questions about what kind of research. I think this will have had a deterrent effect on future rogues because it doesn't look like things are going to end well for Dr. He. That's a great point. I think given how how happy Xi Jinping has been to promote all sorts of Chinese nationalist sentiment and China being the leader of science, technology, and biosciences, um, their repudiation of this achievement, I think I agree with you, is a, is a very strong point. Maybe, I guess, to wrap up our discussion, you know, this has been a case of using a technology in a very inappropriate use case too early, too fast. And this is not what we wanted to happen in terms of the overall CRISPR roadmap and, and progress. What do you see coming down the road, I guess, uh, from a global perspective that are productive experiments, that are productive milestones um, that will actually make good use of CRISPR in the coming years? Well, I think and hope that the best advertisements for CRISPR will be its successful use in gene therapy and living people. And there are some phase one and maybe even phase one, two trials going on with CRISPR as a gene therapy agent. The timing on this is is really quite good for CRISPR. The first gene therapy was tried in humans in 1980. And interestingly, kind of like Dr. Hu's experiment, It was a widely condemned, way premature experiment that got its experimenter, a UCLA researcher named Martin Klein, in deep trouble. The UCLA IRB Ethics Committee had said, don't do this. So he went to Israel and Italy over the summer and did it there. And UCLA got very upset with him and said, if you're a UCLA person, you have to listen, you have to abide by us no matter where you're doing the work. Well, it took 37 years from that first use in 1980 until the FDA finally approved a gene therapy treatment. That first happened in 2007. There have been a couple approved. CRISPR isn't essential for gene therapy, but CRISPR should make gene therapy a lot easier, faster, more accurate, better, cheaper, etc. So I think CRISPR gene therapy will be, should be, 
a clear, you know, if it works and if it's shown to be safe and effective, should be a clear win both for humanity and relieving human suffering and for CRISPR in its reputation and in the marketplace. A little more ambiguous will be CRISPR uses in non-humans. Some of them will be widely applauded. So changing uh, crops to make uh, the, the most popular kind of banana is currently being attacked by a virus for which uh, maybe a fungus, a pathogen of some sort for which there's no cure. Well, people are working on using CRISPR to make that immune from the disease. Things like that should be very popular, although you've still got the anti-GMO groups that will complain about it. Once you move into non-humans, though, you've got the possible risks of somebody making a mistake and changing a species in a way that makes it a bigger curse. So turns it into an invasive species that could be a bad thing. I think uses in human embryos shouldn't be attempted for at least a decade, maybe never. Those are likely to be the last big use and in some ways the least important. So I think CRISPR's future is bright. It's brightest with respect to treating diseases of living humans. It's second brightest with respect to treating to, to changing non-humans. And it's very dim and far away, I think, in terms of making babies. That's a great overview. Anisha, any final comments or thoughts? No, I definitely agree with everything that you shared with us today, Professor. Uh, this was highly illuminating. I think here at ARC, we, ha we share some similar sentiments and viewpoints. So this is fantastic. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Greeley. Sure. Thanks for giving me a chance to get up on a soapbox and uh, preach. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.